Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. We're going to be switching gears again and moving from philosophy back into the world of literature. Today we're going to be delving into the history of literature and for our purposes today we're going to be sticking to uh, English and American literature. Uh, the reason I'm sticking to these two is that these are the areas of my specialty. Um, I could talk about some of the other areas, and I will mention them briefly, but you would be much better served going to someone who is a an expert in those areas. So I'm going to keep it to the areas that I've studied the most. Uh, I highly recommend you do read the other areas of literature, the other traditions, because the people who wrote in the British and American traditions were reading those other traditions as well. Uh, literature is very much always been something that has gone between cultures and cultures add and uh, take away from each other with their writings. So for today, though, we're going to be sticking to the British and American. And the reason we start with the British is obviously the British literature existed long before uh, America was a uh, country, at least a country that was an English-speaking nation. The... British literature starts out the way basically every other literature starts out around the world. All literature starts out as oral literature. This is true of every culture of every area. All cultures, all societies have oral literature uh, first because oral literature predates writing in every single culture. Uh, when you have large amounts of information you want to keep, literature is the best way to keep that information. People often think of literature as things about love or nature or beauty or things like that. And these are things that literature does discuss. But the literature of earlier times is often about so much more than that. Uh, literature was how you would transmit religion. It was how you would transmit family lines. It was how you would transmit ethics. You know, how do you behave in certain situations? Um, it would be how you would transmit uh, all of these things in ways that could be remembered. If you're looking at early literature in every culture, being oral literature, you're going to find that it's mostly going to be composed of songs and poetry. And there's a reason for this. When you're trying to remember a long story and a large amount of information, it's much easier to remember if you put it into a form that is regular. This will jar your memory. If you think about things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, these are monster-length books, and these were originally poems in ancient Greek that were oral for a long time before they were written down. So someone would have to remember the entire Odyssey and remember the entire Iliad. And the only way you can do that is to have some kind of structure to help you remember what comes next. Rhyme or uh, meter pattern or a combination of the two. You know, if you were given an, an assignment and told to memorize the chapter of a book or memorize a song or a poem, you're going to find the song or poem is going to be much easier to memorize. And so this is a large part of why we deal mostly in poetry and song in the early literatures. In English literature, we start out in the Old English period, and the early pieces are very much uh, 
pagan works. Um, they are either Celtic or Norse in their subject matter. Later, as the Roman Empire changes uh, Britain to Christian, the works take on Christian themes. Um, and there's a lot of poetry that starts out in the oral tradition that gets written down once England becomes Christian that becomes Christianized. An example of an Old English poem would be the poem Beowulf. Beowulf was written in the Old English period long before it was ever written down. It was an oral poem. So people would have to memorize it, the entire thing, and recite it from memory. And the audience of literature will always influence the subject matter and the way literature is presented. In the Old English period, literature was very much something that was presented in the beer hall. And the audience for this would be the warriors in between battles, in between wars, that were drinking and listening to the stories of the bard who was performing them. Now, when you think about these stories like Beowulf, it's easy to think of, well, these are just action and adventure stories to entertain people. But if you really look at what's going on, you'll notice that they are stories that give ethics. Um, how is a, a warrior supposed to act with other warriors? How is a king supposed to act? How are you supposed to act when you're a guest? How are you supposed to act when you're a host? These things are all a large part of what's going on in Beowulf. If you think about things like the Odyssey and the Iliad, uh, particularly the Iliad, you have lots of sections in there where they are telling you all of the people who were on the boat. Uh, this person was on this boat and this person was on this boat. And basically what this was doing was this was tracing family lines. So in addition to conveying ethics and history and religion, uh, literature also conveyed family lines in a lot of the longer works. This way people could trace their family origins if they were ancient Greeks to the Trojan War and know, hey, my great-great-great-grandfather was on this boat and mine was on this boat. And this becomes a way of connecting these stories that seem to be fantastic with everyday life. <clears throat> As you move towards the end of the Old English period, um, the literature is primarily geared towards men in the beer hall, as I said. Towards the end of the Engl Old English period, we have the event that we talked about in the history of the language, which was the French taking over and conquering England. So when you have this happen, Old English becomes a spoken language only, and the written language becomes French. And along with this, the production of literature changes and has a different audience. Literature is moved from the beer hall and having an audience of mostly men in the Old English time period to the Middle English time period, it moves to the court. And by court, we mean the royal court, where the lords and ladies gathered and uh, made plans and made alliances and uh, socialized. And so you have a different audience. While the Old English period, the audience was predominantly male and warriors, the Middle English period uh, is predominantly females and males. And so when you have a shift in audience, you often have a shift in the literature, both in the structure in the literature and the subject matter and even the ethics and morals that it conveys. 
During the Middle English period, you start to have the courtly romances. And courtly romances are out of the French tradition. These are stories of the knights and the chivalry and, and the lords and the ladies. And these are not necessarily romance in the sense of romantic, but romance in the sense of how these groups should interact with each other. There were very specific codes with how knights were supposed to interact with ladies, especially upper-class ladies. And the higher up the lady, the different the treatment. This may seem still to be geared towards a male audience, but when you think about it, uh, who were the knights? The knights were soldiers. They were warriors. And if you know anything about the actual goings-on of warfare, you know what happens in warfare is often the soldiers will, when they conquer an area, often rape and pillage everything they can get their hands on. And these stories start to be a way to civilize these warriors, to say when you conquer another knight, when you conquer another territory, those women aren't yours to rape and do whatever you want with. You've killed their protectors, and now you must become their protector. So in these courtly romances, there is supposed to be a great love between the knight and the lady. Um, they're supposed to trade tokens of affection, uh, tokens of love, but they're never supposed to consummate the relationship. The idea here is hands off the upper class ladies. And you can see why this would be geared towards an audience that is female, because women have a uh, large stake in not being attacked during warfare. Now, this did not extend to the lower classes. There was a lot of literature in this time period where the lower class women and lower class men were basically seen and treated as amusements for the upper classes. So it's not quite as um, uh, forward-thinking as we would like to think, but it is a step in that direction. The lower classes were not the intended audience for the work anyways, and so their ideas and their thoughts about it was pretty much ignored. Um, the authors always have to go to their audience because the audience is going to be the people who will pay for the work. And during the Middle, e Middle English period, a lot of the um, audience that was paying for these works to be created were the women at court. And so they're paying the bills. You want to put together work that takes them into consideration and they want to hear. As we move out of the Middle English period and start to move into the Renaissance, the British literature starts to take on even more influences. Um, now added to the French influence, you start to get a rebirth of the Latin and Greek classics. And so you have all of the Latin and Greek um, classics being translated into English, and you have works that are using the characters and, and using a lot of the similar themes. <clears throat> During this time period, though, the still the predominant um, form of literature is poetry because it's still, for the most part, mostly spoken. You do start to have, during the Renaissance, though, um, books are being printed. But these books are extremely expensive and are really only going to be owned by the upper classes. So you still have a very much upper class audience. All of the works are geared towards the upper classes and making them 
uh, happy in telling them what they want to hear. If you think about the works of Shakespeare, the serious characters are always um, lords and ladies, even if they're in disguise, um, or kings or queens or gods or goddesses. Whenever you have a lower class person in the picture, they're basically there to be comic relief. Um, the funny stories, the humorous stories of Shakespeare, or the humorous parts of the tragedies and uh, serious works are often done by the lower class characters. That's where they come in as, uh, as comedy relief. Again, they're not as much a part of the audience, although during uh, the Renaissance you do start to have the lower classes be more part of the audience as far as plays go. Plays in Shakespeare's time were not the stuffy affairs we tend to think of that they would be. Uh, they were much more like a festival. Uh, the lower class people would be down on the floor, down by the actors, and the upper class would be up in the seats. And often during the plays, the lower class uh, people in the audience would even wander onto the stage, and the actors would have to sort of write them into the play and then boot them off the stage. Hello, old Uncle Joe, you're, you're drunk, go on home. Um, you know, so they would bring them into it. It was, it was much more organic than it is. And there were jokes that were written in these plays that were geared towards the lower classes, sort of the more body humor, and then there were jokes that were geared towards the upper classes. So you can see that there starts to be in this time period a little bit more of a recognition of the different uh, classes and realizing that the audience is composed of a widening group of people. As the um, rise of the middle class starts to occur and you move into uh, more recent times, you start to have a new class of people who have money. You have the aristocracy still, but the aristocracy is really not the people who have all of the money anymore. The middle class, the merchants and businessmen, start to be the ones that have large amounts of money. And when you have large amounts of money, you want entertainment. And back then, entertainment meant books, literature, music, things like that. So the audience takes another shift under the rise of the middle class and starts to treat middle class characters more as serious characters instead of just comic relief. Um, this is what's known often as the Romantic period. There's also a sh several other shifts that start to happen in the Romantic period. One of them is a change in the poetic diction. The Romantics start to see literature as being something that should be written and, and um, be received in the, in the common tongue, in the common language that people speak. So you get rid of the poetic diction. When Shakespeare is writing his plays, um, people in his time period weren't speaking that way. That was poetic diction. A lot of the words that he's using in his time period were archaic words even back then. Um, that wasn't the way that common people spoke, even the upper classes. When you get into the Romantic period, there starts to be a desire to have people speak more in the common language. Now, this isn't quite what we're used to in modern times where you're talking about dialect, where everyone speaks with an accent. Um, this is much more um, the common language is in the standardized version of the language. So everyone would be speaking standard English. 
uh, for the poems and the plays, and the new form of literature that starts to rise, which is novels. The Romantic period is the beginning of the rise of the novel. Prior to that, as, as I've said, everything was mainly in poetry form or play form. Now you start to get a different audience, and this audience wants novels. They don't want book-length poems. They want novels. And so you start to get a rise of that form of literature. <clears throat> As the Romantic period goes on, uh, in England, the main writers would be Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, and then the younger Romantics, Byron, Shelley, and Keats, uh, Mary Shelley, um, in America, you would have the Romantics being people like Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson. Um, after the Romantic period is where you start to get a split between the two. The Romantic writers, uh, especially the younger Romantics in England, tended to live very excessive lifestyles. In fact, the younger Romantics, Byron, Shelley, and Keats, are all dead before the older generation. They all die relatively young, mostly in their 30s. Uh, Keats was only in his 20s when he died. Um, they tended to live excessive lifestyles and there was a reaction against them. England is moving into the Victorian time period and literature becomes much more conservative and restrained under the Victorian time period. The excesses of life were frowned upon by the Victorians. There was also a reaction against Napoleon. Napoleon is considered part of the Romantic movement, and that excess of letting things go and and being more uh, open uh, tended to cause things like the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And so they're in England, they have a strong reaction to all of this excessiveness, and they move into the Victorian period. In the United States, this is where we really start to get the beginnings of actual American literature um, as being really distinct from British literature. Prior to the Romantic period, really, American literature is a copy of English forms and using some of the themes that uh, and stories that are in the New World. Um, starting at the end of the Romantic period, though, you start to get uh, American literature and British literature split. While British literature goes into the Victorian period, uh, American literature starts to go into a period known as realism. <clears throat> the reason for the movement away from the Romantics in America is a very different event. This is the Civil War. Um, during the Civil War, you have uh, a huge shift in American culture because prior to the Civil War, most people never went more than five, ten miles away from the place they were born. So if you were born in New England, you lived and died in New England and you didn't know life anywhere outside of New England unless you were one of the few who traveled, but most people didn't travel. During the Civil War, you start to get um, people from New England being shipped down into the Deep South during the war and seeing very different ways of living, different ways of speaking, different foods, different environments, um, and, and it's a very different life. And they start to be after the war, there starts to be after the war a desire to put the country back together. 
And in order to do that, there's a need to know, well, what are those people like? How do they speak? What do they eat? What kinds of weather do they have? What are, what are conditions like for living there? So realism is very much trying to um, present the world in forms that are, as the name implies, realistic. We don't have... Uh, we don't have everyone speaking the same way anymore under realism. There starts to be a desire for dialect. When we have characters in Texas, we want them to have a Texas accent. If they're from New York, we want a New York accent. This is something we're very familiar with in literature today. We want stories to be authentic sounding. We want people who are in these stories eating the kinds of foods they would eat in Texas or in New York or on the plains or in California. And so there's very much a desire to have literature reflect reality more closely. <clears throat> During this time period, there's also a little bit of a shaking of people's foundations. Um, Part of what launches the realism period is also a couple of thinkers. Uh, one of those thinkers is Darwin. Now, whether people like Darwin or not, believe what he has to say or not, Darwin is definitely a game changer. Uh, Darwin is not um, someone that is ignored in his time period, and he starts to offer a different view of where we came from and how things came to be. Prior to Darwin, there were people that had toyed around with the idea of evolution, but those were mainly intellectuals. Darwin kind of brings this idea to the masses. And Origin of Species is an extremely popular book. Um, libraries can't keep them. They have long waiting periods for people to read them. They can't print copies fast enough uh, for the demand. So this is something that brings this idea to the majority of people, brings it to the masses, and it challenges the old idea of religion, the idea that we are here and we're, um, this was all put here for us. With Darwin, now there starts to be the idea that maybe we're just one creature among other creatures, and it starts to change people's view of the natural world. In earlier stories, the Romantic period and earlier, if the character was sad, he would go outside and it would be raining and gloomy and the external world would reflect the internal world. You know, think of Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Um, the gloom of the character is also seen in the environment. And Edgar Allan Poe would be considered one of the romantic writers. <clears throat> in the realist period, people start to realize that nature is more neutral. It's neither for us nor against us, it's just there. You can be having the best day of your life and it can be dreary outside. You can have the worst day of your life and just have lost the person you love the most and the sun could be shining and the birds could be singing. So nature during the realism period starts to take on a much more neutral uh, position as far as the stories go and as far as the characters. Um, nature is presented as the way it is. <clears throat> now as we go through the realism period, um, people start to become more and more pessimistic. You start to get things like the um, company towns and 
the industrial areas and you start to see a different sense of nature as being something more hostile. Uh, eventually, the, nat the, the realism period moves into what's known as the naturalism period. And the main shift between the two is that in the naturalism period, nature is seen as something that's hostile. It's not something where you're going to go out and get um, inspiration. It's something where you're going to go out on your own and get killed. You know, think about stories like To Build a Fire or any of the stories of Jack London. Um, the person goes out into the wilderness on his own and to build a fire because he's a rugged outdoorsman and he's going to take his dog and go off into the Alaskan wilderness and he's going to meet up with his friends at the next camp. Well, what ends up happening is he ends up falling through some ice, getting wet and freezing to death. Uh, stories like The Awakening with Kate Chopin, where the character sort of has an awakening and decides to leave her husband and children and go off on a, you know, have her own life. Well, she doesn't end up having uh, a wonderful life. She ends up drowning. And the story that kind of gets pushed forward in the nat naturalism period is that if you leave the group, you're going to die. That nature is something hostile, and if we don't work together, if we don't stick together, then we are not going to get through this. The naturalism period goes into the beginning of the 20th century, the first decade, and after the first decade, we start to get another shift in literature. This time, the shift is caused by uh, historical events, uh, one of them being uh, the First World War. In the times before the First World War, war was often seen as something that was glorious. You know, you had battlefields, and war was always portrayed as being this wonderful thing. Well, the First World War is really the first mechanized war with machine guns and tanks and poisonous gas. And so people's ideas about what technology was going to do for us starts to get a little bit of a shock. We saw technology as something that was going to make life easier and make life better. And in the First World War, we see, no, it's actually something that can wipe us out in large numbers. And we have millions of people get killed in World War One. Some of the battles you have thousands or even tens of thousands of people killed in single battles because of the invention of the machine gun. The old style of warfare, everyone marched in nice neat lines with a single shot rifle. You marched to a certain point, stopped, took a shot, uh, reloaded, marched to a certain point, took another shot, and then the two sides would rush in for hand-to-hand -hand combat with bayonets affixed to the end of the gun. Well, in World War One, you'll have one side that's fighting the old style with the single-shot guns and the other side that has machine guns. And so you have entire sides that get wiped out because if you have a machine gun, the best thing the other side can do is not line up for you in a nice line. So you start to have people massacred and you move into trench warfare, which lasts for years and people are stuck in the trenches and don't really move much once they dig into the trenches. There's occasional advances and retreats, but for the most part they're deadlocked in this in these trenches. There's poison gas used, there's bombs dropped, um, and it starts to seem like technology is something that is out to get us rather than something that is going to liberate us. At the end of World War One. Um, nature decides to throw in something and 
make us pessimistic about nature even more, and we have the influenza of 1918-1919, which kills tens of millions of people worldwide. So now people are coming out of World War I with a sense of, well, technology is really not our friend and neither is nature. And we move into the 1920s. And in the 1920s, we also move into the next era of literature, which is the modernist period. <clears throat> the modernist writers very much saw themselves as living in a broken world. None of the old ways made sense anymore. Um, you couldn't count on religion. You couldn't count on technology. You couldn't count on nature. You couldn't count on country. You couldn't count on anything. Everything seemed to be against us and falling apart. And the modernist writers very much wanted to live in a world that makes sense. And so they start to become very experimental. And they start to try to create literature that um, actually captures life in an even more realistic way, but in a way where they can somehow make things make sense again. So they become very experimental with their styles of writing and their formats. One of the ways that they become experimental is because of, a, of another thinker, uh, Sigmund Freud. Now, Freud is another one that many people either love or hate, uh, think he's an idiot, think he's a quack, or think he's a genius, but Freud does a lot to change the way we see ourselves. And part of what he does that does this is with his idea of free association and stream of consciousness. When you think, you don't think in a straight line. It's, it's not like a straightforward plot line where this thought leads to this thought in an orderly progression. Your, your thoughts go back and forth in streams of consciousness. So you think of one thing which reminds you of something else, so you think of that, and that reminds you of something else, so you think of that. So your brain moves back and forth through these associations. Well, the writers, wanting to keep things realistic, realize that if we're thinking this way, perhaps we should be writing our stories this way. And you start to get stories that no longer have the straightforward plot line. Um, you have stories where you will start at the end of the story, at the beginning of the book, and somebody will be telling you, yes, all of this horrible is, all of these horrible things are going on, and let me tell you how I got here. And then they'll start doing flashbacks and flash forwards and tell you the story back and forth. This playing with the timeline is very much part of the modernist tradition. It's an attempt to take what seems to be a broken reality and find a way to rearrange the pieces again so they can make sense. There's very much a sense of if we just get the right combination, we can take all of these fragments from the past and create something that makes sense. The poem that I often think is... Uh, the most representative of the modernist period is T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, in The Wasteland, you very much have a broken world, and you have somebody that's trying to gather together these pieces of this broken world and these um, old songs and these old stories and somehow construct it into something that will make sense again. The modernist period goes through the 1920s, and during the 1920s, which are often referred to as the Roaring Twenties, it seems on the outside like everyone's having a good time. Everyone's drinking, dancing, listening to jazz, uh, and having a good time. 
The reality is very different if you actually start reading the writers of the of the 1920s. A lot of what's going on behind this drinking and partying all the time is people are trying to forget that they just lived through World War One and the influenza outbreak and everything seems to be falling apart. So the 1920s, when you look at it from the perspective of the writers, actually seems to be more of, let's just say drunk and hopefully this stuff gets better. Um, you have, a, you have an, a decade of extreme denial and partying where people just want to go back to the good old days and not think about things. But the writers are already seeing that this return to the good old days is not going to happen, and so they're trying to construct new realities. When we get to the end of the 1920s, uh, right at the end of the 20s, we have another event that takes place that starts to shatter people's faith in the way things are going even more. We have the stock market crash in the Great Depression. So now country, technology, nature, the economy, none of these things are working anymore. Everything seems to be working against us. And nature decides to rear its head again in the 30s and give us another kick with the uh, drought and the dust bowl. So now we have nature again trying to kill us. There were dust storms in the 1930s that covered basically most of the continental U.S. They started out west in uh, Arizona areas and uh, New Mexico and Colorado, and these dust storms blew all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, one in particular was called the is often called the Black Blizzard. Um, people had no idea what to do with these things. There were often no warnings when these dust storms would kick up. You would be outside, and the next thing you know, there would be a giant cloud of dust covering everything over, and people started to die from what was known as dust pneumonia. The dust would get into their lungs and people couldn't expel it, and basically they suffocated from it. <clears throat> so we're moving through the 30s. The economy's destroyed. We're in the Depression. Nature's trying to kill us. Science and technology, country, uh, religion, none of these things seem to be offering anything uh, that we can hold on to with any definitive means, and we move into the end of the 30s, and we start to move into the next calamity of history. Now, this next calamity is comes out of Germany and Japan and Italy when we move into World War II. During World War II, we have become so much better at killing each other than we were in World War I. We've got better machine guns, better tanks, we've got planes that can drop bombs, and by the end of the war, we've got planes that can drop atomic bombs and wipe out entire cities. We have devastation worldwide. Uh, there is no real good estimate of exactly how many people were killed in World War II because there were battles that would rage in different areas, and then only after the fact they realized, oh, there was a village there, and there were people in that village but it's been completely obliterated. So there's no real solid count of how many millions of people were killed in this war. And as I said, at the end of the war, we have the atomic bomb. So at the end of the war, uh, we come to another uh, period of let's just try and forget everything, and we move into the 1950s. Now, the 50s from the surface seem a lot like the 20s. Seems like a perfect time where everyone was having fun, everyone was having a good time and enjoying themselves, 
but in actuality, everyone's terrified and trying not to think too much about things. You know, the perfect image of everybody happy and one one husband, one wife, two children and a dog and everybody has a home and everybody there's no drinking and there's no abuse and there's no drugs and there's no crime and none of this is based on reality. All of this is based on an illusion that mainly is sold by Madison Avenue, the advertising companies. Because after World War II, there was a need to get the economy going again. And how do you get the economy going? Well, you get people to buy brand new houses to start with. Um, prior to World War II, most Americans and most people worldwide lived in multi-generational homes. You would have the parents who would have children and then eventually as the children grew up they would become the grandparents and one of the children would take over the house and have children and so you would have several generations living in the same house. Well you don't sell a lot of new homes that way. You have to kind of get forward the idea that no we have to have the family that's husband and wife and children and grandma and grandpa live in their own house or live in a retirement community because we've got to sell new houses. And selling new houses is a good way to stimulate the economy because those new houses have nothing in them. When you live in a multi-generational home that your family's lived in forever, you have furniture and all of the things you need. You just have to replace things as they wear out. When you move into a brand new home, for anyone who's ever moved into one or move into an apartment, Generally, you have bare walls, and so you have to buy furniture and curtains and dishes and pots and pans and toasters and coffee makers and refrigerators, and it basically becomes a way of selling lots of products to stimulate the economy. Um, during the 50s, the idea that there was you know, no cheating and no, no abuse and none of this is complete fiction. It was, it was put out in the movies and in the TV shows and in the advertisements, but that's never the way things actually were. Um, the difference in the 50s and in the present times is things like spouse abuse and child abuse were not talked about. They weren't reported. In a lot of cases, they weren't even crimes. Unless you were to beat your children or wife to the point where you put them in the hospital, it wasn't considered a crime. It isn't until you get into the 60s that spouse abuse starts to become seen as a crime and child abuse starts to be seen as a crime. Um, in the 50s it was just, well, that's just what happens. And so the idea that those things didn't go on and that people didn't have affairs are completely naive. As we move through the end of the 50s, things start to uh, come apart a little bit and they come apart because a lot of what the surface looked like everything was perfect wasn't really perfect if everything was so perfect in the 50s then why did things come apart so much in the 60s and the answer is that things weren't perfect this is as i said lots of abuse going on spouse abuse child abuse but this is also the era of segregation and the you have the starts of the civil rights movement, and women had very few rights. So everybody wasn't happy in the 50s. 
That was the Madison Avenue Hollywood spin on what life was supposed to be. Because as in the 20s, you had a bunch of people trying to forget about how bad World War II was. And, oh yeah, now the Russians have the bomb too. And they might blow us up at any moment. Uh, if you look at the 50s, there's also a lot of monster movies that come out in the 50s. And this is because you have a lot of fears. Monster movies always and stories um, always come out more when people have a lot of fears that they can't quite um, do anything about. They can't quite put their finger on. But you have a monster movie and there's the, there's the bad guy right there. And we can kill the bad guy by the end of the movie. And so we can feel better about the evil was vanquished. Even though you still have the, um, you know possibility of nuclear warfare hanging over your head. So as we move into the 60s, um, everything seems to be falling apart. You have the young against the old, black against white, rich against poor, men against women, and it seems like the whole society is about to explode in a thousand different directions. And you also in the 60s move into the next era of literature, which is known as the postmodern movement. Now, the postmodern movement is still trying to be realistic like the modernist, uh, and it's still very experimental. The difference with the postmoderns is that they don't see the world as being easily contained into a neat story. And so with postmodern literature, you often have elements that do not make sense together, because the philosophy behind postmodern literature is life is too complicated to fit into a neat story where we understand everything. And there are large amounts of things that we will just never know. If you think about your real life, um, how many times have you known someone and been friends with them or been intimate with them and then suddenly for no reason that you know of, you never hear from them again um, and you never find out what happens? Or you have people that you think are going to be, you know, in your life till, you know, till the end of time ever after. And then all of a sudden life changes and goes in a different direction. So one of the things that the postmoderns um, do is they take the ideas of experimentations from the modernists, but they add it to a philosophy that modern life is too complex to understand all of it. The most you'll ever be able to understand is little bits and pieces. And this is almost in a lot of ways creating a world that can be seen as defeatist and say, well, we can't make sense of it all anyways. But the postmodern writers didn't necessarily want to present the world that way. A world that can't be completely contained also is a world full of possibilities. Um, in, in the postmodern literature, you have a lot of well, what-ifs. Well, maybe we could do this instead. Well, maybe this could have happened instead. And so it tries to essentially open the door and still keep a little bit of that hope without feeling that it's possible to give all of the answers. So a lot of the postmodern writers are sort of throwing this all out there and saying, you know, find a solution. Uh, help us get out of this. So literature becomes very much, uh, much more experimental and very much more open to different ideas. Now, the postmodern literature kind of brings in a lot of post-colonial literature that comes along, which, uh, 
tries to bring up narratives of the people who were marginalized under colonization, people who lived in different parts of the world that the world powers had basically colonized and exploited. And so you start to have a rise in literatures that tell those stories from those perspectives, and they start to intermix. One of the things that the postmodern period does that I think is of benefit is it really starts to show things are not as simple as everyone thinks they are. There is no simple solution, and everything is much more interconnected than you realize. And so it opens the door for lots of different voices to come in. I'm going to break off for today with this, and I thank you all for your patience. This was a much longer lecture than most of the other ones. I hope all of you have a good evening.